Scripture reading today is Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Thank you, Joe, for reading. My guess is that all of us know those few moments of anticipation. So it can be when you are getting ready to hear an orchestra play, and just before they play, there's this moment, there's this quiet, there's this anticipation of something that's going to come. Right before a kickoff, right before a jump ball, there is, like, momentarily things are settling down and everybody's eyes are focused on something that's coming. If you've ever had to do some sort of presentation, some sort of oral presentation where you know you're going to talk in front of people, there's that moment where everything gets quiet and there's anticipation, there is some waiting. Acts 1 feels that way to me. It's like you know something's coming, you know something big is going to come, but it seems like you are waiting in Acts 1 for it to come. We're going to be spending in our Sunday mornings we're going to be spending a little while in the book of Acts, and you realize that Acts just has this message that really reverberates through the whole book, and that is that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That message changes people. That message changes things. And it's not merely the kind of the resuscitation of Jesus. So the message in Acts is not that there was a person that uh, had stopped breathing, but now he's breathing again. Because we know of situations like that. You might have had a friend, a family member, read of a story where someone seemed to be dead, but they resuscitated, they came back to life. You might know of a story where someone seems like their heart stopped beating for maybe even a long period of time, but then it started again and they came back to life. But when it talks about the resurrection of Jesus, this is something where we don't have categories because it certainly is that his heart stopped beating and that he quit breathing and that he really did taste death in all of its fullness. But when we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, it's not just that he resuscitated. It is that he came back to life with a body that would never know any effects of sin, never know any, any limitations of that. So when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, it is something categorically different. And that message is, is taught and preached in Acts 1, and that is what we are still saying 
because Jesus is alive, there is something happening in this world. Jesus is not done working. He rises from the dead, but then he gives an assignment to his disciples. He will continue to work in this world. It'll just be through his disciples. Jesus will, his disciples will be empowered. We're told they're empowered by someone, the Holy Spirit, that will give them strength and energy, wisdom, guidance. They will have a task. They will have a task to bear witness. They will tell what they saw to be and what they know to be true about Jesus. And they will bear witness to that fact, all that he had done and all that that means. That's the beginning of the book of Acts. We we're calling the series Propelled because it's a recognition that we are driven forward. We're propelled. We're driven forward by a person, not just a force, but a person that has imparted motion. That is the resurrection of Jesus. It, it drives us forward. We're propelled, and that's what the book of Acts is coming. Something massive is coming, but you can tell in Acts 1 that that day hasn't seemed to come yet. We're holding our breath almost, waiting for that day to come. And Joe read it a moment ago, but let's go back to Acts 1 verse 9. It says, and when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking at him, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Most people would estimate these are angels, just the way the Luke, Luke talks about this. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I don't know that that was a sharp rebuke as much as it was marching orders, because I think we all would have been looking up if we had just observed that. But it says, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Notice what is happening. This in Christianity is called the ascension. Jesus ascends. He, from their vantage point, he goes up. A cloud takes him out of their sight. And here's what I want us to consider today for a little bit, and that is like, what, what does the ascension mean? What is that all about? I mean, you could be in church a long time and still not have like a firm grasp on, okay, what does, what does it mean? We, we, we believe because we believe the Bible that he was Jesus was taken up to heaven, but what, what does that mean? It, it, yeah, it's connected to a promise, right? He will come again. But what does it mean that he has ascended? The fact that Jesus is gone and that he is in heaven, what does that mean? If you just read Acts 1, you're actually not going to get all the answers to that question. You're having to, you have to go to other places in the Bible to understand what it means. Acts 1 tells you it happened. Other places in Scripture tell us what it means. And one of the things I want us to look at as we look at some other references, not just Acts 1, is that the ascension of Jesus means that He is in a place, a permanent place of power. So if we ask, what does it mean? Acts 1 tells us it happened. But if we ask, what does it mean? The rest of Scripture is going to fill out this important thing that we need to realize. The fact that Jesus has ascended means He is in a permanent place of power. So we get hints of that in Acts 1 where we're told 
a, a cloud received him. In the cloud in the old in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, a cloud is associated often, not all the time, but often with God's presence, God's power, God's glory. We read in 1 Timothy 3.16, though, this, great indeed, we confess, this is Paul writing, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So there is something about that ascension that was glorious. Well, let's keep reading because I want you to notice not just the glory, but also the power attached to this, the power and rule that Jesus has. In Matthew 28, it says this, Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority, this is quite a statement, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we might use the terminology in, in our world. This is like an executive authority. Jesus can make decisions. Jesus has power. Jesus has rule. As a matter of fact, Another writer, so that's Matthew, another writer is going to pick up this same theme, Paul in Ephesians 1. It's going to tell us that God raised Jesus from the dead. And notice what it says, this is the ascension, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And, and I don't know that, Paul, I don't know what else he could say to help us understand this because he is just going to name every possible thing. He's far above all rule all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This is executive authority. This is rule and power. The fact that Jesus has ascended means he is in a permanent place of power. 1 Corinthians 15, 27, God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus has gone into heaven, He's ascended, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Matthew, Paul, Peter, they're all talking about the glory, the authority, the rule, the head, the real power to do things. He's not just figurehead, He has real authority to do things. Jesus is in a place of permanent power. Permanent power is connected to Jesus. And if we said someone has permanent power, if any one of us or any human being, if we were to say they're in a place of permanent power, that may get a little unsettling and scary. That's the kind of things you read of about dictators, right? They somehow form governments that will always keep them in power. And what happens when that happens? Too often we know what happens. There's abuses of power. You start getting news reports of like high body counts of the enemies of the person that is permanently in power. You start hearing of unsettling, scary times, how different it is when Jesus ascends to the place of permanent power. Because this is what we know. Jesus uses that place of ultimate power, ultimate rule, everything being subject to him, everything under his feet, Jesus uses that for the good of others. Jesus uses that for the benefit of His people. God has ultimate authority, and He uses that to send His one and only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. Jesus has power on this earth, even over forces of nature, and He uses that to heal and to feed and to care for people. 
Jesus has power at his disposal. And he goes to the cross and lays down his life with that power that he has. Anything that ultimately would harm his people, Jesus uses his power to work for their good. Jesus uses his authority to give us the right to be called sons and daughters. This is how Jesus uses his authority. So when we think of Jesus ascending to heaven at the, at the throne of God, at the right hand of God, then we ought to think he is in charge. He is powerful, but that should quickly remind us that he uses that for our good. But you read in the New Testament and you read other places, you also recognize the ascension doesn't just tell us something about his power. The ascension also is for the purpose of closeness. So if we attach power to the ascension, I also want us in our mind mentally, and maybe even more importantly in our heart, to attach the idea of closeness closeness. If you read through the book of John, you realize that Jesus had been preparing his people for his ascension. He had been preparing his disciples. And Jesus was talking of when he would go, there would be a closeness. As a matter of fact, John just tells us this again and again. So John chapter 14 and verse 12. I want you just to see all the references here. When Jesus says he is leaving, he says, I am going to my Father. He says in John 16, 10, I'm going to the Father, you'll see me no longer. John 16, 28, all these are before Jesus even died on the cross. I came from the Father, I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. Even on resurrection morning, Jesus says to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So when Jesus talks about ascension, being taken up into heaven, he is talking about it in terms of being in close communion with his Father. There's a closeness about what he's talking about. This is some of the heart of Christianity. And I want you to hear this because, because God, God is love. And that means there never has been a time where he is not loving. It has always been the case that the Father loves the Son. It has always been the case that the Son loves the Father. That's gone on and on for longer than our minds can comprehend. In eternity past, God is love. Not even He became love. God is love. So that's why it's so significant when you hear Jesus on the cross say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this closeness that Jesus has endured for, has enjoyed for all eternity. Now he's enduring being forsaken by his heavenly Father. When you begin to understand what the cross was all about, and some of this is just even still a mystery to me. But when Jesus the Son is on the cross, he is taking the weight of our sin, he is drinking the cup of the wrath of God. He's taking our sin on his shoulders. And sin inevitably involves separation. But what Jesus says is when I'm risen and I ascend, I'm going to ascend to my Father. And that closeness is going to be restored. And by the way, that's for our benefit. It's amazing to me how often Scripture talks about us being in Jesus Christ. 
We're united to Him. We are in Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is close to the Father, what must that mean about our relationship with our Heavenly Father? It means we have a closeness. We enjoy a closeness. You see, and we shouldn't take that for granted because our default setting, your default setting, my default setting is one, because of our sin, of being alienated from our Heavenly Father. We've alienated ourselves. We've run from Him, not to Him. There's distance. There's separation. But because we are in Jesus, anyone who turns and trusts, anyone who repents and looks to what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus has done for, the, for us in the resurrection will have new life and forgiveness of sin and we have a reconciled relationship. We are in Christ, which means we enjoy closeness to the Father. Hebrews 4 says, because we have that kind of closeness, we can go to a throne, which often people trembled when they went to the throne in that time period. You didn't just waltz into the throne room. But we actually have confidence at the throne. Why? Because we know who's at the right hand of the one on the throne. And we can come to that throne of grace, Hebrews 4 says, boldly. We can pray because we know we have an advocate with our Heavenly Father, and that is Jesus Christ, who is living to make intercession, to plead for us to be our advocate there. He's ascended to heaven. And that means closeness. Jesus with the Father, but it also means closeness with Jesus and us. I want you to see this verse in John 16. Nevertheless, I, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Well, I am guessing are scared at this moment because the way Jesus is talking sounds like everything's coming to an end. And he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. And I, I generally am not the one that would blurt anything out, but you might have here of saying, how can that be? Like you leaving is not to anyone's advantage. Jesus, I mean, I know, I know you, you always are right, but I don't know how it could ever be to our advantage that you would go away. Jesus says, if I don't go away, the helper is not going to come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. Who is the helper there? It's the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is promising is if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and he will be with all the disciples all the time. The Holy Spirit will come to you. So to have an encounter with Jesus. Anybody on the planet, can have that through the Holy Spirit. That means we, to have a deep experience with Jesus, we don't have to like, well, I already is going to be in Nazareth on the, the third Tuesday of every month, so we better get there then if we're going to have an experience with Jesus. It means things have changed because the Holy Spirit has come. doesn't mean we have to it means things are different. We don't get excited because we heard, oh, Jesus is coming to the States. Even Philadelphia, I got my tickets to see him and to hear him and to like be close to him. Like, no, no, I'm going, but I'm sending the Spirit and I will be with you always. Believers all over the world will know his presence, which is really, really good news. Because there are times where I am reading the Bible and I don't understand 
everything that's being taught there in Scripture. It's unclear to me. But if I read Scripture, I, I also know I have the Holy Spirit who guides us into truth, always tells the truth about Jesus. I, I don't always fully appreciate the work of Jesus. Sometimes my heart grows cold. But I have the Holy Spirit that magnifies the work of Jesus. I don't have to go, well, man, Jesus, if I only knew you were here, I, he is present through the Holy Spirit. The love of the Father sometimes doesn't like penetrate my heart. Sometimes I'm not fully assured that the Father loves me. But the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, assuring us with good news that God loves us. You never find the disciples. It's interesting, you read the book of Acts, you read all the epistles, you read all the writers, all the first followers of Jesus. You know what they never say in Acts? What they never say in, in their letters, in their writings? What they never say is, you know, it just hasn't been the same since Jesus left us. We had it so good back then. But then he left us. They never say that. And they never say that because the Holy Spirit has been poured out on them. And they have a really deep experience with him. Even though Jesus isn't physically present with us any longer. The Holy Spirit is here. So, in light of Jesus going to heaven, what does that mean? It certainly means that he is in a permanent place of power. It means that there is a closeness that we can enjoy with God that we would not even enjoy if he were here in Palestine somewhere. But I think it's also another way we could answer this question of like, what does the ascension mean? It's like, what do the disciples do in light of it? I mean, they, they don't know how this story is going to be written. So what are some of their first actions? What are some of their first priorities? So, I mean, we could ask it this way. In, in light of the ascension of Jesus, that he's been taken up to heaven, what do you do on Tuesday? What do you do about work? What do you do about friendships? What do you do about relationships? What do you do about decisions you make? And if we look at the first followers of Jesus, I think it'll be instructive to us. Because Jesus told them what they should do. Look at Acts chapter 1. You have it there, verse 4. So while Jesus was staying with them, this is before he was taken up to heaven, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you're going to be immersed, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So that's what he told them to do. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. If you skip down to verse 12, you read this. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Do you notice exactly what happens? It, it's so simple and yet so important. They do what Jesus told them to do. They do the next thing that he told them to do. Jesus says, don't leave yet. He's told them, I've got a worldwide plan, and you're going to be the pace setters in this worldwide plan, but don't leave yet. And you know what they do? They don't leave. They do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They wait. I think they eager, eagerly wait, but they wait. They're, they're not passive, but they're waiting. 
Simple obedience. Do the right next thing. They don't go off script. They, they could have. I mean, Peter could have said, you know, I don't know when this promise of the Spirit's going to come, but I got the fishing business in Galilee, so maybe I'll go there and hang out, make some money, because I may need some money for when all this starts going down. But he doesn't. He does exactly what Jesus told him to do. They don't even go out evangelizing yet. They could have. Jesus had sent them before, go, go out two by two. They knew, they knew how to do this. But Jesus had told them to wait, and they wait. They trust in their heart, even if they're unsure of a thousand things of their future. They trust in their heart that His love and His power, like Jesus knows what He's talking about. Jesus knows what He's doing. And they place their lives in that hand. I say that because I'm not sure they understood everything related to what Jesus was doing. But frankly, it's a common feature of following Jesus not to know everything that he's doing. That's not a bug. That's, that's just part of it. Like, you're not going to know everything that he's doing. So when Jesus does these miracles and people start, like, really wanting to make him king, he'll just disappear. And the disciples probably are wondering, why not just take advantage of it? Why not cash that in for like authority and rule and power? And they don't know what he's doing. They don't know what Jesus is doing when he associates with people that everybody else marginalized. Everybody else said this is unclean. Everybody else said, what a waste of time. And Jesus hangs out and associates with those people, cares for them, loves them, loves them, restores them to community. And I'm sure his disciples are going, we don't understand that. What his disciples surely don't understand is when Jesus says, I have to go to the cross. This is the plan for my life. I'm sure they don't understand that. But you don't have to understand everything that God is doing, everything that Jesus is doing to do what he tells us to do. They keep waiting. I was talking with uh, Seth Asher, who works in our office. We were talking about this last Sunday. And he shared with me a, a definition or at least a description that has really stuck with me about who a disciple is. And he read this from someone. He's, it, it's a disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. And there's a million things we could add to that. But I don't think I'd want to take anything away from that. The most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Dis disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. Constantly revising their lives, their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. That's what they do. Jesus is in this place of power and closeness. And so they act on his orders and notice what else they do in verse 13. It says, when they had entered, so they hear Jesus, they go back to Jerusalem, and when they had entered Jerusalem, they go up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. That's 11 of the 12 disciples. Only Judas Iscariot is not mentioned. All these with one accord. This is what they're doing. 
with one accord in unity of heart are devoting themselves to prayer. And they are together with, so it's not just the eleven, with the women who followed Jesus most likely from Galilee and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They're waiting, but they're waiting together. They're waiting together. They gather together as his followers. What do they do in light of Jesus isn't physically present with us anymore? They meet with one another. Their hearts are knit together. They're in one accord. They pray. They're not just killing time. They're together. They're actively waiting as they are doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do. See, there are these moments like we described at the beginning where we're waiting on something to start. We're waiting on something to begin. But in the meantime of waiting, we Every time we simply do what Jesus said to do, we're following in the path of these disciples. And every time we recognize His authority, His rule, His power, we're following in the path of these disciples. Every time we gather as a community in His name, we're following in the path of these disciples. Every time we devote ourselves to prayer, every time we go to the Lord, we are following what these disciples did. We're the community, we're the community of Jesus. We've gathered in His name to do what he says, and to share and show his love and his message to all nations, to all world. I want to end with a couple questions, and, and they're meant to be pointed. They're meant to make us stop and think. They're meant to provoke maybe some change in our hearts, change in our mindset, change in what we value. So let me ask a couple of those, and then we'll end with a time of asking the Lord for his help. Question number one, is there any area, in light of what we've just read, is there any area of your life where you need simply to do what Jesus told you to do? Is there any area of your life where it just simply comes down to you doing what Jesus told you to do? And you might say, well, Curtis, my situation is complicated which I'd say, yeah, life is very complicated. So I understand that, and I can grant that. I hope you would grant that for me. Life's complicated. I'm asking the question, is there anything where actually it's very clear what Jesus has called on you to do? It's just now an issue of whether you will do it or not. With God's help, is there any area where you need to revise your plans, your life, to more closely follow Jesus? I can't answer that for you, but, but I want you to answer that for yourself. The second question, are you truly devoted to a group of Jesus' disciples? Are you truly devoted to a group of Jesus' disciples? So when Jesus goes to heaven, is taken up into heaven, what you don't read in Acts is a bunch of people deciding they're going to be lone rangers and just kind of isolate themselves, and it'll just be them and Jesus. What you do see them do is immediately gather together. So I'm curious, is your heart linked with their heart in that? And if so, where does that show up? Where does that show up in your life? Where does that show up in your week? I don't have to be legalistic. I think the question is worth asking. What would it look like if you followed their path of being in one accord, devoted together in prayer? What shape, what forms might that take this week? Who might you pray with? Who might you talk to? 
Where might the, the one another's in Scripture, love one another, bear one another's burdens, what context is that going to take? You know, if you've been at our church long, you know we, we, we say membership matters. It, it's important because you're, you're part of a group, you're part of a community. So I'm asking, like, if, you're, if you are a member of our church, where are you devoting yourselves to the group? Not just in a formality, but in a group. Where is that a regular part of your life? And maybe you're not a member of this church or maybe not even any church or maybe it's been a while since you've had a close connection. I want to ask you to consider, like, what is your next step? To, to put your life with a group of people that are following Jesus where you can pray together, be devoted together to say, His mission matters and my relationship with Him matters, but my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ does too. And I'm going to take that more seriously than I've ever taken it. I wonder what the Lord might do in our church this week if we were devoted to prayer, walking together in one accord together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Can I give us just some space to think about it and then I want to lead us in a time of prayer. Our Father, this morning, I thank you that your word is historically accurate. We are reading what really happened. And we can put full confidence in the truthfulness of what we've just read. But I'm so grateful that we are not reading ancient history that has no relevance to us today. But by your power, you are taking your word and you're bringing it to life in this room this morning. And you are prompting followers today of areas where they need to obey. Relationships that need to change. Attitudes that need to change. Steps of faith that need to happen. I'll thank you for your work of doing that in our lives. And thank you for continuing to gather your people together to pray and to call out to you to be devoted to one another and devoted to you devoted to prayer. Oh Lord, may this be even more and more a reality. Not so we have this great and mighty church, but that people will know we have a great and mighty risen Savior, and His name is Jesus. And we pray that our testimony and our witness and our passion would so spread that you might draw more people into this fellowship, that more people would bow the knee to Jesus. We pray that might even happen before the end of this month that there might be people that would trust in you as a result of our walking faithfully with you. Do this so that Jesus gets all glory. We ask all this in his name. Amen.